You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep-voiced person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. We're coming to you from the train track enclosed nerve center and headquarters of the Office of Cable TV, Film, Music, and Entertainment. It's also the historic headquarters of Black Entertainment Television, so it's an honor to be here. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to celebrate this thing called the Council. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You may also know me as the Council's voice on social media, at Council of D.C. If you don't follow us already, get with the program. Here at the Council, our communications goal is to engage with residents in an informative, conversational, and sometimes even enjoyable way. You know if you follow us on Twitter, we're believers in the Mary Poppins School of Communications. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. We want to make it easy for the average resident to understand what the council does. We're demystifying our work and the people who do it. Remember, the D.C. Council is just like your workplace, except with the dais. On the show, we'll try to keep things light, offbeat, informal, and interesting. You'll learn about policy, learn about people, learn about history, and learn about the institution. So now, without any further ado, let's welcome our guest, Ward 2 Councilmember Jack Evans. Thank you. Glad to be here today. Thank you so much for making the time. Uh, so uh, we'll remind our uh, listeners, we recently wrapped up our first round of interviews with council members. They're available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Those focus mainly on getting to know the council members, their backgrounds and biographies. Now in our second round, we're going to focus more on life at the council, their experiences, learning curves, surprises, ins and outs, ups and downs. And a disclaimer, we shared the general questions with the council members in advance so they could prep if they wanted to. Um, and council members can always pass on a question if they want as well. So, uh, council member Evans, the first uh, pitch is a, is a underhand uh, pitch that should be pretty easy to knock out of the park. Um, what do you hold among your greatest successes since you've been on the council? And you've been there a while, so the successes are plentiful. So, as you know, I've been on the council 27 years now. I started in uh, 1991, May 15th, I was sworn in, and the District of Columbia was a very different place back then. Um, the city was struggling in 91, and uh, as I always say, things only got worse. Um, by 1995, the city uh, was in such dire financial condition that a uh, control board was put in place. and. Uh, I can give you the whole history on how we went through that and got out of it. Um, so when you ask that question, what, what among my greatest accomplishments, it, it's a broad accomplishment. It's taking Washington, D.C. from a city in 1991 that was uh, really at the bottom. And with no insult intended, we were the Baltimores, the Clevelands, the Detroits. We were a city that was failing. And today we are the most... Uh, dynamic city in America. Um, when I give my speech on Wall Street, I, I do the uh, BCDs, you know, the Baltimore, Cleveland, Detroit. Well, today we're Boston, Charlotte, and Denver, all AAA-rated cities. 
And so I would say my greatest achievement has been taking our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., from a a city that was um, uh, struggling, to say the least, and making it uh, a world-class capital today. And I I know you can't go into 27 years of detail, but how is that done? How how does that kind of turnaround happen in that and it's, comparatively it's, short time frame. It's a great question, and people ask me that all the time. And, and I got to tell you, it wasn't by luck. It wasn't by chance. It didn't just happen. It happened by a lot of hard work by a lot of people who took a and it took a lot of political courage to make some very difficult decisions that were opposed and unpopular at the time. Um, I would say the the turnaround began certainly with the control board in uh, 1996. I believe they came in and the. Uh, there are hard decisions on, on matters that the council and the mayor were unwilling to deal with. Um, the control board also allowed us to borrow money at that time. Our, our credit rating was so bad, we were B-minus credit rating, and our pensions and unfunded liabilities were so great that we were unable to go into the markets, and that uh, control board's biggest value was allowing us to borrow money from the U.S. Treasury in order to keep the city running. Uh, 1999, with the election of Tony Williams, Linda Kropp became chair, I became finance chair, Nat Gandhi became the CFO. It was really the beginning of the turnaround uh, in the city. We focused on uh, rebuilding our downtown. Let's start someplace. And that was as good a place as any. The city's population had dropped uh, dramatically. We're in 500 and some thousand people. And... uh, the city was largely abandoned after five o'clock at night and on weekends. And uh, so what, what what could you do to change that? And uh, the the big arenas clearly were uh, a starting point. We built the uh, what was then called the MCI Center, which opened in uh, 1997, and uh, the Convention Center, which opened uh, later, uh, another five years later. Um, and and these were in many ways the catalysts that began the uh, rebirth of our downtown, uh, the alphabet soup of things that I tried, tax increment financing, which are TIFs, pilots, payment in lieu of taxes, whatever incentive I could give to anybody to get them to come to the city, changing the business climate that if we put in a set of rules, we weren't going to change them next year. If we lowered taxes, we weren't going to raise them next year. You know, that stability the business craves. Um, so crime, trying to address that. We were the murder capital of the country back in 1995, over 400 homicides. Um, business improvement districts, bids, uh, trying to provide an environment for businesses that clean and safe. So if you open up a business, it's uh, not trash all outside on, on your sidewalks and, uh, and, and customers will feel safe. And I can go on and on about that, but it, it really led to the reinvestment in, uh, in our downtown and once that began to change, uh, residents uh, saw a city government that began providing basic services. I used to say, you know, would trim a tree and hold a celebration that we actually trim the tree as opposed to being a routine basis, something gets done. And, um, and then you fast forward to today, where uh, after all of those things were put in place, we're adding 900 people a month for over 700,000 people, best financial situation uh, in the country, AAA rating we just got on our uh, GO bonds, and we already had one on our income tax bonds. So, but none of that came without a cost. Uh, every one of the uh, venues, whether it was the Verizon Center, now the Capital One Arena, the convention center, the baseball stadium, were opposed enormously by the activists. Uh, people picketed my house, people uh, called us all kind of names, threats, you know, and uh, 
we got through it all, and, and, and now we find where we are today. Two questions. One is, do we ever reach peak arena? Is there ever, are, are they an endlessly, are there a resource that keeps contributing no matter how many of them we have, or at some point will there be a logical number where we, where we draw the line? Uh, the logical number will be when we have the last professional sports franchise using the name Washington in the city. And there's only one left now, it's Washington Redskins. So when the Redskins relocate back to the district, which I'm confident they will, and we build a brand new stadium, they pay for it, but we build a brand new stadium uh, where RFK Stadium currently exists, uh, that will be the end of building sports arenas because we now have brand new baseball stadium, brand new MC, uh, brand new uh, stadium for the Wizards and the Caps, not so brand new anymore, but a new stadium, a Audi field for uh, soccer and um, the Wizards training facility, I keep calling it, but a new sports arena at uh, Congress Heights, home of the Mystics. So yeah, the, the, uh, the football stadium will be the end of those stadiums uh, and we will have to maintain them though. That's the, the thing that will be on the agenda going forward. The uh, oldest of those, of course, being the uh, Capital One Arena, but the uh, Ted Leonsis just put $50 million in renovations into it. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I'll be going on an opening night of the Caps, uh, and apparently they've done a spectacular job with that. So, so yeah, that's, that's as I see the, uh, the end of that coming. What uh, generates your confidence that the, uh, the Washington football team will return to, uh, to D.C.? We have the best location. I mean, it just comes down to that. Uh, the other locations that are available in Maryland, Virginia, just are too far out or not accessible to Metro or whatever the uh, particular issue is. Uh, the RFK site is uh, right in the center of the region. It's uh, Metro on-site. Access roads from, uh, uh, from Virginia and Maryland are easy. Uh, when we had the, uh, I remember the New York Yankees were one of the uh, first teams played at uh, RFK Stadium when the when the Nats moved back, we had 50, 55,000 people. I don't even know how we got them on the stadium. And uh, people were, when the game ended, they were all out of there in 45 minutes. Contrast that with FedEx Field, where you can spend a day trying to get home. So it, it really is a great site. And uh, the fact that the team uh, will pay for the stadium, I think, is a real selling point. And uh, hopefully we can uh, put that deal together. It's not done yet. And... Uh, and there's a long way to go, and they certainly, certainly still could pick Maryland or Virginia. I just think we have uh, by far the best uh, opportunity. Uh, now, back to your uh, your answer about the success of the city uh, and the progress we've made. How could we screw it up? Easily. <laughs> if you want the answer, we could easily screw it up. Um, finances are always delicate, and uh, recessions coming, and uh, which we haven't had one, as you know, in a in a long time and nine years of uh, economic expansion. And so when you put in place programs that are uh, expensive, like the paid family leave program that they're talking about now, that uh, have to be paid for, that when recessions hit, it's hard to take away once you put these social programs in place, uh, you could easily find yourself in a position where your revenues are uh, not meeting your expenses, and then you have to figure out a way of covering everything. And so I am always very cautious and, and people, uh, uh, I think, f accuse me of being uh, not supportive of, of their causes, but you have to be very careful in, in, in the way you spend your money and in the programs you put in place 
that are not sustainable over the long term. So that's that's what could happen. Uh, the business regulations, I think, are a good example. This Initiative 77, which no one supports, but somehow got passed. Uh, on top of sick and safe and this and that, um, small businesses are getting clobbered in our city. And so it, it doesn't happen overnight, but what can happen is the growing trend uh, and, and business leaves the city and jobs follow business. And next thing you know, you're in a downward spiral. So we have to be very careful of that. And I, I think that that's lost on a lot of my colleagues. How uh, recession resistant is the D.C. of 2018 compo- uh, compared to the D.C. of past recessions? You know, we're not the government town we used to be, which is seen, you know, I think is a good thing, obviously. But now that we can't rely on the stability of government, even during recession times, are we more uh, susceptible to taking a hit during a recession? I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, we still do have a, a huge government presence here, no question about it. But again, when a recession comes in and affects the value of our properties, mostly, uh, that's when things can get tough. Uh, you know, commercial property tax is one of our biggest raise, revenue raisers. Uh, residential taxes as well, and uh, income taxes, sales taxes, so we rely on the big three. And, and recessions affect all those things. And when we had the recession back in 09, 08, we actually had to dip into our reserves to uh, cover the government expenditures. So anytime a, uh, a big recession hits, I think we are vulnerable and, and need to be prepared for that to happen. And I think that's the hardest part about government. Um, most elected officials are very short-term thinkers. You know, they're only thinking from uh, today to uh, the end of the today and, and not long-term, uh, which is why maintenance is a big issue for government officials. You know, preventive maintenance doesn't get anybody anything. I don't get applauded for keeping something looking exactly like it is. I want something new and shiny that I can show my voters. And so you ignore uh, the the maintenance that's necessary. Metro is the best example of that happening in our streets, bridges, et cetera. Um, so I think it's very important that we as a government keep focused on on our reserves, on our maintenance, things that people come to expect but don't necessarily applaud you for doing. Yeah, I, I know on my microcosmic view of things, uh, on my co-op board, yeah. small 20-unit co-op. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, you don't get a round of applause for repointing the brick. Right. But once it starts leaking into the apartments, yeah. uh, there's hell to pay. Yeah. Uh, you know, you'd much rather do a, something new, something sure. glitzy and exciting. And that was kind of my introduction to the world of Metro or the council, where yeah. it's a hard vote yeah. to spend money on a have to than I want to. Exactly. Well, it's funny you mentioned the condo. One of my first elected offices in D.C. was on the condo board at the Webster House and would be constantly putting money aside for the elevator maintenance fund. I mean, nobody (laughs) cares about the elevator maintenance fund until the elevator doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Um, Now, let's look at the flip side of things. Uh, We've talked about successes. Uh, Talk to me about uh, a failure about something where you didn't get your way, couldn't get your way, and uh, how you how you dealt with that. Yeah, you know, I, there aren't that many of those. I'll be honest with you. I, I think uh, my view has always been a long-term view, and, and uh, when something doesn't, uh, doesn't work, um, I keep coming back. And 
I have this uh, philosophy, I'll, I'll just outweigh everybody who doesn't support what I'm doing. And, and frankly, it's worked quite well. I always use the business improvement district legislation as an example. Uh, I introduced it in two, uh, 1992, it uh, failed. 94, introduced it again, failed. 96, introduced it again, got it passed. Because the council changed and viewpoints changed. And so if you just take a much longer term view that we'll get there. Soccer stadiums, another example. God, we worked on that for 12, 14 years, but finally found a site, finally got the funding. So the, the important thing is uh, to have a strategy, know what you're doing, and then just keep keep plugging until you get it done. So I can't say that we've had a, a, a lot of failures uh, over the years. And again, the city's, uh, the way the city's doing today is really proof of um, the long-term goals and the long-term strategy that we uh, put in place. I have, a, again, a mirror experience of yours in that I tried to start a business improvement district in Adams Morgan uh-huh. and got pushback from the businesses because there were other sources of city funding coming in through other outlets. And when those sources of funding dried up and they were trying to run uh, an entire neighborhood on uh, dues, business association dues, uh-huh. all of a sudden the Adams Morgan bid uh, made a lot of sense. Uh, that's and funny. lo and behold, we got it through. And, good. Uh, yeah, that's so a good example. And still plugging along. Yeah, so uh, yeah. right there with you. Yeah. Um, you have a, uh, and I mean this in a positive way, I think a bit of, uh, can be a technocratic way of looking at the city working. It's very cut and dry. It's very um, inspired by good finance, good management. Um, and I think that served you well. Um Talk to me about an example of a case where the humanity of something got to you, the tragedy of something got to you. It can be testimony, it can be meeting someone in the community where just your heart was broken by something um, that the city didn't do or didn't do well or needed to do better. Well, I I think the area where I feel passionate about based on um, where the city was so failing is the arts. It, it just comes down to that. Uh, uh, the arts were something, I, I'm not an artist myself, but uh, uh, I remember um, uh, my three children are all, all they're 21 now, but uh, uh, they were all very interested in art. And, and I, I saw that early on. And then I had some great friends. Uh, Kay Kendall comes to mind. She's the current uh, chairman of the Commission of Arts and Humanities. But uh, I remember sitting with her at a dinner and her talking to me about the Washington Ballet and how they didn't have funding. And they had this new director, Septim Weber, and he had this great idea for the Nutcracker, but they couldn't afford, uh, I, I call them uniforms, they're, they're actually costumes. And um, and, and then the uh, the lack of art and music and appreciation in in our schools and our children didn't have access to it and 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 what we were doing as a city and we didn't have any funding in that area or really any any uh, nobody seemed to care and um, so I took that on as my own and today I I'm just proud that. Uh, we as a city are, are contributing enormous to the arts now. We just passed uh, in this last budget, finally, after years and years, going back to your earlier point about failures, years and years of trying to get dedicated funding to the arts, and we got it this, through this time. And a, a sales tax uh, dedication that will give the arts $30 million plus dollars a year uh, going forward to help small artists as well as the big guys who also need the uh, assistance because they provide so much to our uh, children. 
And um, I was just uh, at, at an event, uh, the Penn Faulkner, the other night where talking just about this, where we get children who never would have an opportunity to write and to read uh, artistic uh, material and, and allowing them to do that. And, and the list goes on and on now. It's with studio theater and national theater. The, we have the second largest number of theater beds in the uh, city, uh, theater seats in the city, next to New York City now, in a, in a city that at one time had nothing. So um, that that's uh, very important to I me. Mean, last night I was uh, honored to give an award at the Mayor's Arts uh, uh, exhibit that they had. Um, it's like the Academy Awards where they award uh, different groups. And, um, and and as I spoke to the crowd, it... it uh, really was heartfelt how, how far we've come and how much we've accomplished in that area and, and continue to do so. And, uh, and you know, many, many kids, uh, sports have always been important to me, but many kids aren't, aren't good at sports. And so if you don't provide other alternatives like the arts, uh, then, then you're really failing. And my goal is to make sure that every child in our public school system has access to the arts. And is it was the origin of your your fierce interest in the arts your kids? Because after when you when you sort of, if someone wanted to stereotype Jack Evans, kind of the one element of your policy portfolio that they wouldn't predict would be your arts interest, right. long standing, deep, deep, deep. You know, you fight every budget cycle. Is is it your kids? It, it's it's uh, it, it's it's hard to. I, I heard everything you just said, but I'm just curious what triggered that initial interest. It, it really was. Yeah, it was the kids. I, yeah, I mean, they were born in 1996, and um, you know, when they were three, four years old, they were very, all of them, uh, very interested in it. And and fast forward to today, my daughter is a senior at Parsons School of Design in New York City in women's fashion design, and and really just doing gangbusters up there. We worked uh, with Michael Kors this summer, and you know, she was always drawing little pictures of you know women with clothes and going back to when she was very young and my son is a uh, artist so so good he could draw a picture of you that looks like a photograph uh, i don't know where that talent came from it wasn't from me i don't think his mother had it either but nonetheless and that outlet and and uh in school they they had access to the arts and and uh were able to promote that whereas had they been in a place that didn't, uh, they would never, they would never know they had that skill set, and and would have felt uh, like failures, and so yeah, that was a, a beginning. But it, but I don't want to also not stress the people I met in this field. Again, the Kay Kendalls and others right. who, uh, Dorothy McSweeney, who, uh, and and many others who. Um, who showed me what we were not doing in the city and what we could do, and how great we could become, and. Uh, that's where we are, and it's it's great to continue to push that agenda, uh, so that we are known as uh, more than just uh, the nation's capital, but a, a capital of art and humanity. That's that's very important to me. Now, as someone who's been there for twenty-seven years and who's seen it all, you must have some funny stories. Um, maybe funny stories involving colleagues. Uh, many of them, I'm sure, are not uh, radio appropriate, but um, <laughs> if, <That's right. laughs> if, if you have a funny uh, story, it doesn't have to be with colleagues, but those are the most fun. Uh, has anything come to mind? Well, I've, I've seen the whole movie over <laughs> the time that I've been there from... Uh, uh, you know, 1991 with the cast of characters we had then tell the, the group today. I, I would say the uh, funnier stories were the earlier ones with uh, 
you know, Marion Barry when uh, he was on the council with us, and uh, John Wilson, my predecessor, who uh, uh, chaired the council, and uh, and a number of the people who who came and went through those years. I was part of uh, something called the Young Turks in uh, 1992, three, four, when the city's finances were failing. Uh, myself, Harold Brazil, Kevin Chavis, and Bill Lightfoot. Uh, we were all new on the council and had these ideas about how we could cut the spending and fix the finances, only to be completely overruled by the uh, older members of the council who referred to us not as the Young Turks, but as the Young Turkeys. And so uh, that was an interesting dynamic. Uh, I remember John Wilson coming in uh, into a, these were when the breakfasts were closed to the press back then. and. He was so angry at Harry Thomas, this is Harry Sr., and uh, about something, I can't remember what it was, and he was, he got out of his chair and he was gonna, he was gonna go beat Harry up, and uh, remember John Ray jumping in between them, and Marion Barry was sitting there eating his breakfast, and he said, let him fight, let him fight. <laughs> and, and Kevin and I sitting there not going, not having any idea what's going on here. Um, so uh, traveling the world with Marion Barry was always a lot of fun. Uh, Carol Schwartz, another one who I remember being on the bus in South Africa and Marion and myself and Carol. Carol liked to talk, you know, so she, um, a, a silent moment was not something that she was going to allow. And so she started talking about the purple flowers. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Marion said, Carol, will you just shut up? And Carol had the last laugh because she did. And then there was silence on the bus. And then the silence was too too long. And Marion said, Carol, could you start talking again? I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. That's pretty <laughs> so funny. It was. It was the, uh, so we've had, and, and uh, as you said, there are a lot of stories you can't tell. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a couple of very quick questions before we wrap up. One is, so how is it, as an elder Turk now, Yeah. Uh, how do you relate to the current batch of young Turks? Uh, well, we have a good group of people on the council, and uh, I think my role, I think it's tiresome to some of the new people because they sound like, oh, he's telling the old stories again. But to um, to just try and remind everybody of where we were and how we got to where we are. I think uh, the, the council now is quite new. Um, I'm the senior one. Phil, I think, is the second senior, and Mary's third or something. Vince Gray, of course, who has uh, been around a long time, not necessarily on the council, but when he and I started out, I was... Uh, council member in uh, 91, and he was the head of uh, human services in the Kelly administration. So Vince and I have worked together closely on a number of things over the years. Uh, but I think what I, I try to bring to the uh, table is uh, a sense to people of of what, where, where we were and, and to avoid those kind of pitfalls again. Uh, I am obviously the only one on the council who was here during the control board years and um, and the uh, resurgence that took place after that. So, but I think um, we have a lot of uh, good council members, a lot of energy, and um, so um, uh, I, I feel optimistic for the future of the city. Okay, a uh, quick answer on this. What is your council procedural pet peeve? What do you wish the council could do differently? Um, I wish the council would start on time and end on time. That's my pet peeve. And I, I will tell you this, uh, it's my, like my experience at Metro. When I became chairman of the board of Metro, nothing ran on time. The board didn't start, didn't end. It was, it was fairly chaotic. And I laid down the law. I said, uh, the board meetings will start at 9 o'clock and they'll end at 10 o'clock. And at the first board meeting, I was alone. And I started the meeting. And uh, 
eventually people got the message and now uh, we start and end in a very timely fashion. And, and at Metro, I felt that way because how can you ask the bus driver to be on time when the board members can't seem to start on time? Uh, so at the council, my pet peeve is that I have too many members who don't start things on time, don't end on time, people show up late. If the breakfast is at nine, everybody should be there at nine and we should get started at nine. And it's just the way I am. I'm very anal about uh, about that. And uh, that's the one thing if I could get everybody to change would be to start on time and end on time. Understood. <laughs> the on-time caucus, you you and Councilmember Grasso. Grasso, yeah, David's always there. Me and him are sitting there alone in the room. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's go to our closeout question because we're almost out of time. Uh, last time you were here, you ranked uh, dessert categories, which was very helpful. Yep. Uh, now I would like you to pick uh, at least two of the following. Um, do an impression, tell a joke, Tell us about a strange thing you collect. Tell us about an oddball job you had. Tell us about one ludicrous thing you can't live without. Tell us about your weirdest fa- weirdest family member. Uh, or shower me with effusive praise. Well, I'll definitely do the last one. Thank you for doing these things. It's, it's fabulous. You do a great job. It is a uh, it, it's an honor to be here and for you to... Uh, get all of this information out to the public and, and frankly put a um, you know a human face on council members who otherwise are only seen maybe on TV or viewed uh, uh, in, in a uh, professional manner I think this is what you do here is really important so I want to thank you for doing that um, but I could uh, answer some of these other ones um, sure bring let's it go through um, an odd bod job I've had well I've had a lot of odd bod jobs I uh, started out uh, working when I was very young uh, cutting grass my dad was a florist so I worked in the florist uh, uh, business um, one summer I rented uh, rowboats at uh, at Moon Lake State Park, which was uh, something I hope never to do again. But I think the the, uh, the most, um, I, I don't know how to put it in an oddball category, but the most, uh, the job that had the, almost the most impression on me was when I worked in a factory. It was a Kinder Furniture Factory. And um, I was on the assembly line uh, assembling uh, chairs. And my job was to staple with a staple gun the burlap on the chair as it came by. And that was it, that was my job. And I had no other job. And I remember uh, as I was stapling, uh, I guess I was so bored by the whole thing, I actually stapled my thumb to the chair. And uh, the sum, and I was shocked. And the assembly line kept moving and I had to run down as my thumb was stapled to the chair till they stopped it. And uh, the uh, foreman came over with a pair of pliers and pulled it out. And that was it. <laughs> and they had to go back to work. Go back or? to work. And it was like, man, I'm going to stay in college. <laughs> I, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Um, so you know, that was... Uh, that was uh, that was my oddball job to say the least. Uh, and the boat did. boat rental. It sounds like that left a, uh, a negative mark. What, what went yeah, wrong with horrible. the boat rental? It was horrible. I uh, had the early morning shift, so I had to be there uh, from six uh, six to two. And um, yeah, so I'd get there, I'd be exhausted because you know I was a teenager, staying out way too late, and my job was to rent boats to guys who were fishing at uh, six o'clock in the morning, and I would fall asleep on the job, and the guy in charge would come down and yell at me for being asleep, and uh, yeah, it was, uh, and then I had to clean the boats, and it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't for me, but. Um, Again, a, a job that uh, promoted me to stay in college and uh, not end up running, 
rowboats at Moon Lake State Park ever again. So <laughs> I had a lot of them. Uh, the florist business was interesting, too. I had absolutely no talent at all. So my dad uh, put me on the trucks, the delivery trucks. So I actually got to know the area quite well. But um, I spent most of my holiday seasons, uh, the night before Christmas, the night before Easter, the night before Mother's Day, uh, on a truck delivering uh, whatever you delivered, corsages or whatever, uh, to people all around the valley. So, uh, yeah, so I'm glad I'm not doing that either. So. Gotcha. Worked out all right for me. Yeah. I, there, there's endless, I have endless interest in the oddball jobs. People yeah. Have, I need to compile a list from the other <laughs> council members, but there's some good ones out there. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, well, unfortunately, uh, time went quickly. We're out of time. Um, so I want to thank you again, listeners, for joining us and ask you to tune in again next time. We're at DC Radio at 96.3 on your HD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. I'm Josh Gibson. This is not a council hearing. This is hearing the council. Thanks again, council member. Thank Appreciate you, Josh. Your time. Thanks very much. Take care.